This program is sponsored by Wicked, Chronic, and Natick, Massachusetts. Located on 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. You are listening to the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the canceled TV series in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. And I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And tonight we are going to be doing a, something a little different for the Adams Family, uh, sorry, for the Dead TV Podcast coverage of the Adams Family tonight, as we're going to have an interview followed up with, a, uh, with one episode after the interview. And Mr. Zeneca is going to introduce our special guest tonight for this episode of the Dead TV Podcast. Brings me so much pleasure to welcome Linda H. Davis, author of Charles Adams' A Cartoonist Life, published in 2006. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for asking me. (laughs) Now, you are actually a hard lady to find, uh, since you don't have a Facebook or Twitter's (laughs) social media. So uh, we finally were able Mm -hmm. to locate you through LinkedIn, of all places. Um, But... I'm mm-hmm. certainly glad you're able to join with us today. It's, of course, since the Adam show has been so far uh, removed from modern TV and everyone is practically dead, it's really difficult to find anyone that's willing to talk to us about it. Since your book, <laughs> your book is actually one of the source materials that I use for the weekly focus areas, and I personally have read this book at least four times. Plus, I have the audio book, and I listen to it in the car, and, uh, I mean, the, the story that you paint with your words is just excellent, like, just excellent. Before reading your book, I thought I knew a bit about Charles Adams, but once I read it, I knew my knowledge was focused more on the art than the man. So just to uh, lay the foundation here, how did you get this opportunity to do the biography for Charles Adams? Oh, well, first of all, thanks for the compliment. I wish more people had felt the way you did. It would have been a bestseller. Um, Well, uh, I had written two biographies and was having trouble coming up with an idea for a third. And I don't know how I came up with Adams. I think he was a repressed memory or idea. I had a folder I'd kept for years of biography ideas, and I clipped out 
obituaries, often from the New York Times, which are a great place to find ideas for biographies. But I never looked at it. But one day I was thinking I had just exhausted every literary subject idea and a couple of others. And I thought, well, I could write about an artist or a cartoonist, and I just thought Charles Adams. So I wrote to uh, the widow, T. Adams, and uh, not an email. I didn't have her email address. In fact, I don't think she had email. Mm -hmm. And uh, asked her whether she would consider cooperating. And I didn't hear from her. Some time passed, so I thought I didn't want to send her my books. I didn't really know anything about her at that point. I thought, well, it's too much to ask someone to read my other books. So I sent her a copy of a memoir I had written about E.B. White for The New Yorker, which was published in the late, early 90s, I think, called The Man on the Swing, because it's a biographical portrait. And I thought, well, that will give her a sense of my writing and my sense of humor. And she wrote me right away, had it FedExed the letter to the door, asked me to call her, and I did. And she invited me to her home in Sagaponic in Long Island, and we hit it off. And that was that. That's what it took. Wow. But it didn't take a lot, as it turned out. (laughs) What type of access were you granted when you started? Complete access. Um, She... uh, she opened the door to his other friends, anybody who might have been difficult to get an interview with. But she let me just roam around the house and look through everything. A lot had been organized into folders and files at that point. But nothing was off limits. In fact, um, I used to tease her that <clears throat> when she was going out to lunch, I said, now while you're out, I'll be looking in that third dresser drawer of yours. <laughs> You know, like I'd go into her bedroom and rummage around. She says, fine, I don't care, you know. <laughs> Which, and I would never do it. But she she did make a, she died before it was finished. But she she said to me once that she wanted me to write a good, honest biography of Charlie and not to worry about, and that if she was gone, uh, not to worry about what I wrote about her. She wanted it to be good. It turned out that she loved biographies more than any other genres, and I didn't know that, but that was a lucky break. And a number of people had approached her over the years to do an Adams biography, and she chased them away. She thought they didn't either they weren't good enough writers or they didn't have the right sense of humor. And um, but she wanted the book to buy, to be honest. She didn't want me to worry about her feelings or what her feelings might have been. She was just extraordinary as the spouse of, uh, you know, a subject. How long did it take you to write the book? Oh, I'm ashamed to tell you it took me six years. It was supposed to take two. Part of the part of the problem, probably the biggest part of the problem, is that Adams did not leave a conventional written trail in the way of letters, which most people leave, I mean, or did before the age of email. There was practically nothing. I I had literally a few letters and notes. So I had to depend very heavily on interviews with people who knew him. I, I think I talked to about 130 people or so, and there was a core group like T. Adams, 
um, I talked to over and over and over again. And there were all these marvelous anecdotes and Charlieisms they told me, really funny things he said. But they were out of context and they were undated. I did have a lot of information about his drawings. He kept uh, meticulous notebooks about sales. That was extremely helpful. And he kept these little date books from about 1960, almost until his death, right up until his death, I think. And so that was helpful, too. But it was incredibly difficult trying to take literally thousands of cartoons and cartoon roughs and photographs and all of these unmoored anecdotes and stories and spin them into anything resembling whole cloth. It was just maddeningly difficult. And I don't think I would have been able to do it if I hadn't written a couple of serious biographies. Now, I'm a slow writer, particularly when it comes to book writing. So I wouldn't have finished it in two years anyway. But it, it wouldn't have taken that long. Um, also, I, I was ill and I didn't know it. You know, people always say, oh, I killed myself working on that book. Well, I almost killed myself writing this because I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and didn't know it and didn't know it was wrong with me. I was falling asleep at my desk. And believe me, to fall asleep when you're writing about Charles Adams, whether it's his personal life or his cartoons, there's a problem there. (laughs) My husband Chuck used to say, whenever he heard me laughing up in my home office, he knew I was working. (laughs) And that was true. So um, I just wasn't feeling like myself. and, And I had to basically throw away, not literally, but almost the entire first draft and start over again. I wasn't sure I could do it, but I I just finished it. And I had turned it in. It had been edited. I was just working on gathering photographs and cartoons and getting legal permissions for things when I ended up in kidney failure in the ER, and that's how I was diagnosed. So I I went through chemo before it actually came out and then maintenance infusions the next year. Wow. I I hope you're feeling better these days. Oh, yes. I've been in remission a long time. And I don't tell you that story to be depressing, but to defend myself for taking (laughs) six years. Because at least a year, a couple of years of that had something to do with being ill and some early signs. So, So it was a combination of things. I really didn't know if I could finish it, but um, I did. Yeah. That's a, that's pretty bad to see. That's, that's blood, that's a blood cancer, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You but people have... are living a lot longer because of, of uh, this targeted therapy been, that has been yeah, going on yeah. for some years when I got it. Yeah. The, act, the actor who plays Dexter Morgan on the television series, Dexter was diagnosed with that. That's right. I loved Dexter, by the way. I've forgotten that about the show. Yeah. You can really tell that you really did your homework uh, for this book because at the end of the book, you have like a very large acknowledgement section, and it's quite impressive. Just the notes section alone where you dive into what source you use for each quote and such, like, wow, that's a lot of work. And I mean, even if you told me that it took 12 years, I would believe that that time was spent dedicated to researching because this is just an intense collection of stories and quotes and anecdotes. 
Did you have in your process where like the timeline spread out on the wall and all these strings kind of, I'm, I'm imagining this little big conspiracy theory wall where you've got his life kind of mapped out. <laughs> yeah, like a, a drawing uh, of uh, <clears throat> of a crime scene where the body was found, right? You have to yes. map it out. I, I had a very archaic way of organizing my material, which I... I invented myself, there might be other biographers who do this, but, and that was, I did two things. I didn't have a map on the wall. I've always put a lot of photographs around as my subject to just be seeing him or her all the time. And I had a lot of cartoons and things like that around. But I organized my subject into handwritten notes on what what looked like an old-fashioned card catalog, paper catalog from a library, except they're bigger. They were like five-by-seven cards, I think. And everything was cross-referenced so that if I wanted to uh, bring up a certain description of Charles Adams, I would look under Adams Charles physical descriptions and know exactly where to locate it in my files. But then I also kept folders for every year of life, except for childhood, that would be in one folder. So that I, I did have that kind of timeline. I just didn't didn't uh, put that on the wall in front of me. But, you know, whatever works for you. And I found that I could be watching the TV show or something in the evening and doing this index. So it was kind of fun to do. And I also still think, and maybe it's just people of my generation, I'm 66, but I, I learned to write notes by hand. I still keep date books like Charles Adams did, the little ones that for me fit in my, my purse. And I learned to write on a typewriter and by hand. And there's something about the act, for me, the act of writing something out that helps me learn it. So it sounds like a drag and too complicated but I enjoyed it, and it, and almost always I was able to find anything I was looking for that way. Was there anything surprising or shocking you found out about uh, Charles Adams? There was uh, when we were discussing his biography, one thing that really stuck out to us, and it was significant to uh, the passing of him, is that Charles Adams had worked in the uh, the art department for the um, for the war with Stan Lee. That you know, Stan Lee was a nobody in those days, and Charles Adams was a somebody and had been for some years. Lee right, was a lot right. younger. He was a lot yeah. younger. He just died last year, and he was, what, 90-something? 96. Okay. See, Charles Adams was born in January of 1912. So he was just a little, you know, Nobody at the time, not to be rude or anything, but Adams was, a, you know, he was a big player and star. Um, I never got to interview Lee. He was one of a few people who wouldn't make time for an interview. So I, I don't know what his impressions of Adams were. And Adams probably, I mean, he never left any impressions of Lee that I'm aware of. Any aspect to his life that when you started diving into it, you're just kind of shocked over? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it was the story of his second wife, whom T. Adams fondly referred to as Bad Barbara. His first wife was a Barbara, and his second wife was a Barbara. 
And the third, who went by the nickname T, was Marilyn. But it was it's, it's such an over-the-top story. Uh, it's hard to believe. And I won't try to tell the whole story here, but ask me whatever you want to. But he, she was she was basically, uh, she was violent. He was basically an abused husband. Um, oh. she, there were these wild fights they had. She threw an African spear at him once and hit him over the head with a high heel, a stiletto heel, and sending him to the emergency room. She faked a pregnancy to get him to marry her. And then she faked a miscarriage and got him to sign over deeds of houses and and the rights to the Adams family cartoon. She was making money on him years after he died. She lived to hmm, the early 2000s. I think maybe she died in 2004. And there's one part of that story that really stopped me in my tracks, and it took a long time to figure it out and make sense of it. And that is that I Barbara actually gave me uh, when she wouldn't have done this if, if she hadn't if I hadn't convinced her I had to write about her marriage to Charlie. She's very manipulative and and uh, tough to deal with. But she gave me a copy of this letter first. I had to read it first in her apartment in New York. She spent a few months of the year there and lived in Europe most of the time in which he basically makes a suicide threat if she won't forgive him for something and confesses to, you know, slandering her. And it's all, it's clearly in Charles Adams' hand. It's written on New Yorker stationery, but it's not his language. It's not his feelings. And I was so shocked when I got this because it seemed to upend everything I knew about that relationship and his feelings. And, you know, he had told people he would have signed anything, done anything to get out of the marriage, which was true. Well, this was one thing. I talked to six or seven of these very close people to him over and over again and thought about it. I lost sleep over this trying to figure this out. Finally, I think I was convinced by something. I believe Nancy Holmes, one of his lady friends, said to me, she said, well, you've never been in an abusive relationship, have you? And I said, no. Well, she had been. So she understood how someone could write something so dishonest and pathetic. But that just shocked me. And and it took me a long time to make a kind of sense out of it. I hope I made sense out of it in the biography. Yes, I mean, it, it definitely dives deep into that manipulative relationship. And, and just the fact that she was financially entangled with him, even past uh, Charles Adams' death, you know, for the, the first movie, that's just, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, it makes me hate her. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Everybody did. <laughs> yeah. It was this was legendary at the New Yorker that this ex-wife had walked away with the rights to the Adams family. Man, yeah. And they were married less than two years, by the way. Yikes. And, and the basis of the marriage was fraud. She got a very questionable divorce that took about forty-five minutes in Alabama. It was it's just so over the top. So that that was probably the biggest shocker for me. As of right now today 2019 who owns the rights to the adams family is it the family again is it sony because they're making the animated movie 
it's the it's the T and Charles Adams Foundation. Okay. So, uh, which T Adams helped establish before her death. Good. Okay. So that's. Okay. So so basically, which, the mm-hmm. everything that's uh, that we see from the Adams family properties, the IP, is now going to mm-hmm. the foundation. Yes. Okay. Right. That's and they that's they great. had to buy back the rights that. Barbara left to some family members. She didn't have any children, but I guess she left left her uh, ownership interest in the Adams family, which she still had when she died, to some nephews and relatives. And the Adams Foundation people, uh, I think, had to pay a lot of money to get that from to, to get to get the family members to sell that to them, so that they would be free to license everything. Wow, what a hassle. <laughs> I know, and she had another marriage after after Charles Adams that lasted a very long time. So it's all very And that and really that's the time strange. that she became Lady Coilton, right? Yeah, Lady Colleton. Oh, she married uh Lord Henry Colleton. Very agreeable, charming man <laughs> as Charles Adams was. So she got a title and a phony British accent and <laughs> <laughs> But she and Tra- they, the, the relationship is so complicated, but they actually did uh, maintain a friendship until he died. And he was incredibly good to her and mostly very forgiving, even though she held on to all sorts of things. But I do think a lot of it was, it was mostly fear because she could be extremely vindictive and go after other women she knew or suspected that he'd been involved with and try to damage their reputations and things like that. So he, he, it was easier for him just to part with a lot of money and keep the peace with her than to push back. Wow. There's a great line from a, from a Ron Perlman in a, uh, in a movie when, uh, when, uh, when I think of this. Says, you were nothing but a big old psycho. <laughs> Yeah, diagnosable, I'm sure. Well, well, psycho, that's the line Ron Perlman says. I think it was uh, the Winona Ryder in Alien Resurrection. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, she, she's uh, so over the top, you almost think she was invented, but she was a real oh, person. Uh, I met her several times and yeah, had a lot of dealings with her. Yeah, on this podcast, I, I went over kind of in a nutshell the interference that she did with the Adams Family television show contracts. And just that that alone is just a Mm -hmm. snapshot of the type of, you know, shoehorned in-ness that she would just Mm -hmm. wedge herself into everything that he was involved with. Yeah, he didn't realize at the time David Levy approached him with the idea for the Addams Family TV show, because she was always having him sign things, you know, under duress. And he didn't realize that he had signed away the rights and was, this deal was going forward and she happened to come to New York and found out about it and she almost cost the whole thing to go down the drain. Uh, Harriet Pilpel, his lawyer, who was with a top law firm that uh, handled the New Yorkers among other uh, valuable literary properties, was, she was with a law firm called Greenbaum, Wolf, and Ernst. She saved it, and I think Barbara realized it was going to go down the drain and she would get nothing. So she finally got 10% of his earnings, and then he 
gave her another 10%. Probably that wasn't shut taken her up. from. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but that's just it because she had been so nasty and going after people and you know he knew that that she'd hurt people he cared about and make his life miserable it's easier just to let the money go now uh now that we've started talking about the tv show uh did you interview any of the actors the remaining of living actors from the show for the book i did i had a had a lovely meeting with john aston charming, charming man, and uh, that was really fun because cause I watched the Adams Family TV show when I was a kid. My brother and I watched it, <clears throat> and I, I didn't know at the time that that started, that started as, as drawings in The New Yorker. I didn't know anything about The New Yorker. Since you interviewed John Aston, what was his opinion of being on the show and char- of Charles Adams himself, and did he ever finally meet Charles Adams? Oh, yes. Yes, he had a nice relationship with him, and uh, you know he adored him, loved his work, enjoyed the part. Uh, when I saw him, my husband and I drove somewhere out in New York State. I can't remember where it was because he was in a play, seemed out in the middle of nowhere. So we went to the play, and then afterwards we sat in this bar where I, I chatted with him, and we were in a room with the cast, it was sort of a, a more private area of the bar, but people knew he was there. And at least three times people came up and, you know, comment called him Gomez or commented that people thought they looked like Uncle Fester, and by the way, they did, <laughs> one especially. And he, he told me during the interview, we also talked on the phone, but I did get the chance to meet him, that... Everywhere he went in the world, to this day, people would make an Adams Family comment. And he never, he was never unkind about it. He was such a class act and so charming to these people who were interviewing our, sorry, interrupting our conversation. And just really gracious. And he knew what it did for his career. He thought he loved Adams, loved his work. Uh, Adams came up with all the names for the characters except for Wednesday. And he gave John Aston the choice of two names for Gomez, either Gomez or Rapelli. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Aston liked Gomez. And that was generous of him. He didn't have to do that. But yeah, he was, he was very uh, supportive of the cast and the film. And the TV show, I should say. I also talked on the phone to, now I'm having a word retrieval problem. Who was the guy who played Pugsley? Uh, Ken Weatherwax. Ken Weatherwax. Yeah, I talked to him on the phone. And he didn't have as much to say because he was a kid, his little boy. But everybody had a favorable impression of Adams. He came to the set and came to a party that Carolyn Jones had, decorated her house with Aaron Spelling like a you know, a funeral parlor or something. A lot of people did that when they had parties for him. But <laughs> he was always game and really lovely about it. Did Charles Adams enjoy having his cartoons translated to the television? He did. Uh, he had his doubts about it, but he had wanted um, a theatrical version for many years, at least from the 40s. People had approached him with ideas about doing a play or a musical or something. The concept was never right. And uh, he he changed his mind 
he was hot and cold on the TV show over the years. At first he liked it, then he decided it wasn't any good, then he liked it. But ultimately, he, he, he certainly fully recognized what it did for his, for his, his income. It, he didn't get filthy rich on it. <laughs> Barbara didn't help that, but it, it certainly boosted his income significantly, and he appreciated that. Yeah, if it, they just remained New Yorker cartoons, uh, he certainly wouldn't have found the mm-hmm. type of audience that he met with uh, the television show. Like, it just exploded. No, and he knew that. No, and he, it, he absolutely knew that and appreciated it. He was a class it, it, act when it came to all of that stuff, everything. It's really funny to think about that out of, you know, all the members of the Adams family there's, that are, that are, that have passed away, uh, you know, uh, when, uh, the, Lisa's still alive and John is still alive in his 90s. And that, that's amazing. And he has IMDB credits that still pop up today. So we get it. He's doing some things here and there, nothing I've seen, but that, I, I thought that was fascinating. And I was, and I've always said to Mr. Zeneca, I was like, we're going to get him on the show before we end it. We'll have to get him on the show over the phone or, but oh, I, you I highly try. doubt it. Oh, he, we he should no, try. We don't, know well, we don't know who his manager is. We don't know even who to contact, if he even has a manager, because he doesn't do cons. I mean, I'm always mm-hmm. looking at Adam, looking up. I'm always Googling Adam's family convention appearances, and the only person who pops up is Lisa. But even all of her social media has gone dormant over the last couple of years. And I met Lisa mm-hmm. at um, Terracon in 2014 at the Rhode Island Comic Con, and she was a delight to meet. I forgot to take a picture with her, but I got her, but I got a, uh, a signed picture, and mm-hmm. I didn't get Ken's, unfortunately, and then he ended up passing away later that year. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, she had brought up that, uh, you know, she had seen John like a couple of years ago, and, you know, he's very approachable. And I was like, oh, because I had asked her to come on my radio show, Radio of Horror, uh, which I do on Sunday nights. And um, she said that, yeah, you know, contact me on social media. A couple of years later, mm-hmm. now we're doing this podcast. All of her social media is dead. I mean, it's it's active, but it's there hasn't been a post on it in years. So it made me question, did something happen to her? And she's just not on social media anymore. And then I've tried to look up how to find John, but nobody, I, none of my contacts have been able to say they know who his manager is. Hmm. Well, I will root around, and if I if I can find anything that I think is helpful I'll send it to you because he is he would be a great interview he's very uh, literate and articulate charming just he's a he's a good one if you can get him you should get him oh, yeah man. we're doing this for at least two more months uh September uh, sorry three more months August September and I think by the end of August, October just in time for the animated movie to come out we will be finishing up the Adams Family coverage okay yeah. I'll look in the next day or so and if I have anything I'll I'll send it to you yeah, honestly, I have not been in touch with him for a long time, so anything I have might be out of date. Uh, yeah, and we're the only podcast doing the Adams Family in any kind of coverage like this. Most podcasts are doing like an episode, or they cover the movies, or they've talked about the Broadway play, but there's no podcast mm-hmm. covering it like the extensive amount of coverage that we're giving it episode by episode. Um, well, he has sat for some interviews on the Adams Family. I've seen some on YouTube, so... Yeah, we, They've we found just, him. We just need I, to find he, him. He should be findable. Well, he's, I think he still lives in California, but I let let me look and see if I can be helpful. Yeah, John Aston interview would be one of my life bucket lists because I have been an Adams Family collector since I was a kid, and uh, you know I, I had a mountainous collection at one time. Now it's just pared down to the truly valuable things. 
And on this podcast, I've been doing um, reviews for his bibliography as focus areas recently. Mm -hmm. Every time that I read your book and I look at my cartoon books and my memorabilia, the Adams Family gives me a, a feeling of just homey warmth <laughs> for how strange it is. And mm -hmm. I, I think if I were to actually interview John Aston, I would have to calm myself down so significantly because that's, that's like a, a lifetime bucket <laughs> he list. He would put you entirely at ease, though. He would. He's, <laughs> he is just absolutely wonderful and charming. That's okay. Totally uh, unpretentious. I'll, 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 I'll do the interview for the both of us. Don't you worry. Yes, I think I would put that <laughs> Hey, by the way, I did that interview with John Aston, and you come on the show like you did what now? Oh, yeah, oh. We, he, uh, he was that busy in the middle of the day, so we just did it. If you, if you left me out of that interview, I would kill you. I would drive up to Boston, and I would kill you, Dr. Chris. <laughs> okay, well, um, it's about time for us to wrap up. So I want to ask, uh, what's next in your career? Are you doing a new uh, bioarchy? biography at the moment? No, I'm not. I decided to retire when I when I finished Adams for various reasons. It wasn't helped by going through cancer treatment and all that, although, yeah. I, as I said, I've been well for a long time. But I I have no interest in writing biographies anymore. I, I, they just completely take over my life. It took me a long time to do each one. And I, I'm at a time in my life when I want to enjoy my grandchildren and go to the theater and not have a book hanging over my head all the time. So I don't want to work that hard. I haven't really been writing anything in the last few years. I had been writing some essays and columns, and I do want to get back to it. I just have not really felt very motivated. So, But I want to feel motivated, if that makes any sense. No, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, you're you're in your uh, prime retirement years. You should enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Is, and and writing a book is, involves a lot of sacrifice. I I didn't see friends very often. I was always staying home. I don't want to do that anymore. And frankly, having a, uh, going through cancer and I had a pretty bad uh, um, prognosis, which I've proven wrong, but you never know when it's mm -hmm. going to come back or if it's going to come back. I, I don't want to spend whatever remains of my life slaving away. I I want to spend time with, I have two little grandsons, one's three, the other's a year old. I was very close to my own grandchildren, and so I, I want to be part of their lives and, and, and see more of my friends and people. Anyway, how do you top Charles Adams, really? Where do you expect me to go from there? I, I know, I know. It's just the best topic. <laughs> <laughs> I understand working on a biography. I um, started a project back in 2012 called the New England Horror Filmmakers, and it's the stories of filmmakers that made their movies here in New England from any of the six states. Oh. And uh, the stipulation oh. was they had to be born here or at least raised here and made the movie here. If they went away to college and came back or left and came back, that's fine. But majority of their life had to have been in New England, and they had to make the new movie in New England. I don't care where they did it in post, but they had to make they had to film here. And it got started, it got going for two years. I worked on it, and then I gave up after like a dozen rejections or whatever, and I was just like, 
the mm-hmm. same re- rejection wasn't wasn't it wasn't good. It was nobody knows who any of these filmmakers are, Chris. They said nobody right. knows. They who don't any have of the people. sense of history. Yeah. Right. And I said, what do you mean you don't know who they are? I'm like, this person is, you know, done this. This person was awarded this. They're like, yeah, but they're nobody. They're no, they're not a name. Nobody is going to mm-hmm. read this other than people in New England. We're going to market it to six states and lose a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. But recently, I've kind of like. I, after seeing people's other people's biographies and documentaries and the, and the horror documentary genre has become its own thing or whatever, I've decided to kind of go back to it and start interviewing mm-hmm. new filmmakers. Some, inter- some, some of the interviews, unfortunately, I can't use due to either falling outs or the interviewers have just disappeared off the face of the planet Earth, and I need them to sign like a thing saying, yep, this is me, and everything in there is true. I've decided to go back to it. I've ta- I've I've kind of lapsed in the last month or whatever, but I'm going to be picking it back up in Steam and hopefully also getting a co-author on the book to help kind of write it a little better because my writing is not that great and um, the idea is there, but my writing is really kind of hit or miss sometimes. So I'm going to be like co-authoring it with somebody to help flesh it out a little bit better and make it sound a little bit more coherent. But uh, mm-hmm. for a little while there, it was taking over my life for a bit, um, and mm-hmm. I hadn't even made a time off of it yet. So, But we do well, really it, do appreciate coming on the show with us, Linda. Oh, it was my pleasure. Um, I will tell you one, one thing you might be surprised at. I had a lot of trouble selling, or my agent had a lot of trouble selling Charles, Charles Adams. Really? I mean, and I got ended up with Random House and Bob Loomis, one of the great editors of the business, but he he felt that without the Adams family and the TV show that that made it so famous, it, it really wouldn't be sellable because people even then, and I got the contract in 1999, had, had no sense of history and didn't know who he was. Oh, that's a shame. That yeah, that astonished me, but that, but the publishing business is to me unrecognizable today and was when my Adams came out in 06. Um, it's just changed so much from the time I started. And it's it's a really tough business. So I think you're wise to look for a co-writer and I somebody who has the yep. real credits too. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us, Linda. We really do appreciate it. You are very welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I enjoy reading your book, and I suggest it on our podcast a lot because it has such a wealth of knowledge in this tome. Constantly impressed by just every little tiny bit of detail that you were able to glean from his notebooks and from his interviews and his friends. I, I mean, everyone that should actually read this book, this should be a coffee table book for – uh, the goth community, at least, because they are huge Adams Family fans. So I hope that uh, your books sell in the future to new audiences, so that you can, you know, have your residual checks. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. You're so kind to say that. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you once again, and uh, I think that's it for the Dead TV podcast today. Send me a link when it comes out. We shall. We will. We definitely will. Great. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Hello, and welcome to Screen Scene. The horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, then rank them from best to worst. 
your dedicated hosts, Sarah and Ben, bring you a new episode each week, covering the history of film through a horror lens. From sound to sound and black and white to color and the social and cultural context surrounding them. Scream Scene is your well-researched, in-depth, and respectful dive into the horror movies of old. Join us, Creatures of the Night, by subscribing to Scream Scene on iTunes. And visit our website, ScreamScenePodcast.tumblr.com. You'll be dying to subscribe. (laughs) That's pretty bad. It'll be a hell of a good time. Better? It'll lift your spirits. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We're back with the episode that we're going to be covering for tonight alongside the interview we just did. Uh, So there'll only be one episode, and Mr. Zeneca has the episode synopsis for us. Morticia the Writer, originally aired November 5, 1965. Appalled by the children's school reading assignments, Morticia throws herself into the task of writing proper stories for children. Adam's style, of course, but Gomez fears success will take her away, though it pains him to tamper with obvious masterpieces such as The Good Giant Slays Sir Lancelot, he enlists Uncle Fester's aid in sabotaging her stories, but to his horror, the tamper tales get published. How can he explain himself to Morticia? So in this episode, the episode actually starts out with Fester actually walking over hot coals. Yeah, where does this come from? Why do people walk on hot coals? There is a mind over matter a bit to walking over hot coals. It's, it's kind of a thing that happens a lot in um, tropical regions. And also in, like, a more Eastern-style philosophies. And they do it just to prove that there is mind over matter. There is a technique to actually walking over hot coals. I have not done it, but I have seen people do it. Fester manages to go all the way uh, in his bare feet, and Gomez tries, but t- ends up burning off his shoes. You know, Morticia just says, you know, maybe next time you should try it without your shoes on. <laughs> It's something that I have seen before that I've been uh, never curious to try myself. I I don't think I would ever do it. (laughs) No, no, never. (laughs) So the kids come in, and they have some books that are really disturbing to them. You know, they have uh, The Wicked Goblin, How Sir Lancelot Slew the Evil Giant, and How Pamela Escaped from the Wicked Witch. And, of course, the subject matter of these are just all you know, against everything that the Adams family stands for. You know, they love uh, goblins, and they say an evil giant is just basically a large pygmy. Yeah, that was funny. So, yeah, so so Morticia wants to actually uh, rewrite these books into a better light. And so she takes up uh, her writing space in uh, Cousin Cackle's cave, which uh, I suppose he inherited from uh, uh, Uncle Fungus. Because the acoustics in there are so much better. Yes, yeah, I suppose. Uh, she actually ends up turning off the echo because it's a manufactured echo. <laughs> Thing reaches his, uh, reaches around the hole and just take uh, pulls down the lever and turns off the echo in the cave. All work and no play gets books done, is what she says to Gomez. The publisher that happens to show up in this, oh, shit. publisher that shows up in this, Peter Bonbonera's, this was his first acting role. Most of what you see on IMDb immediately comes up all of his directing roles. And then the next one he did was both acting and directing in uh, 1966 uh, summer fun TV series in an episode called The Pirates of Flounder Bay. 
but he was best known as playing uh, Jerry Robinson on uh, the Bob Newhart show for 139 episodes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was great in that, too. Long-time actor on the Bob Newhart show. Um, and he was also on E slash R, not to be confused with ER, the uh, Dr. Drama show, which I watched up until I just stopped watching it. Um, and he was uh, director of, like, 93 episodes of uh, Murphy Brown, which recently came back, which I did um, not watch. And I never watched the original Murphy Brown, but I know how important Murphy Brown is to the zeitgeist of uh, women in television and feminism and, and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, I know the importance of uh, Murphy Brown for, for a lot of those good reasons, but I heard the revival was not very good. I did not watch the revival. I... Only watched Murphy Brown a few episodes. I liked it, but it just wasn't really my style. And I also directed episodes of Home Improvement and Good Morning um, Miami. Which he was also, um, let's see, I think he, let's see, acted in the Dinosaurs? Yeah, he acted in Dinosaurs TV series. Oh, the, um, the Jim Henson show? Yeah, with the uh, people in the dinosaur costumes and the animatronic faces. Right, which uh, the... The uh, unfortunate series finale for that, which uh, was a more like a canceled television show, which I don't know if we'll ever get around, ever cover it. I mean, it might be fun, but I don't know if that show still holds up as much as you'd think it does. The meteor was coming. Yeah. <laughs> the, the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs was coming. Again, I have rewatched that in reruns. It is, it does not hold up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fun I... to watch like a single episode, but I could not do that in nausea every single week. And, and then doing a podcast on it. Good. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Yeah, the, the jokes that get a little tired. And, you know, as much as I love to see the, not the mama, not the mama, Gomez thinks that Morticia's book is just going to take off, and so he wants to clear off a shelf. There, there's this bit where they're forming a line. Lurch is pulling the books off and then gets passed down and, you know, through Gomez and Fester and then hands it to Thing, and Thing takes them into his box. And then, of course, they disappear. And, like, tons of these books, like, just shelf after shelf of books. It's it's a little gag that they do. Um, I also need to point out the smoking Indians in the room. The smoking <laughs> Indian statues themselves. Uh, because it was the 1960s, and we didn't give a shit about Native, Native Americans back then. Yeah, yeah, there's the uh, female statue and the male statue, each with different sized cigars. Uh, Gomez comments about it being a gift from Morticia, and uh, she says that she is not an Indian uh, Indian giver. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that joke does not hold up. <laughs> I, I I still see the smoking Indian statues sometimes, um, and I don't know if they're considered to be offensive or not. I don't hear anybody like tearing down the smoking Indian statues as much as we tear down the statues of uh, Robert E. Lee. Yeah, I I've only seen them in a couple of cigar shops. Honestly, I don't really know the significance. I didn't look into that part of this episode. Well, I'm assuming Native Americans, tobacco is a you know big thing. The two are connected. It is a power plant for them, yes. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that's not really offensive if that's like truth. I think it was actually an advertising gimmick. Lancelot killed by a giant. Uh, that that's kind of funny. Um, the, the book that Lurch gives his over is the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. I don't know why he, he groans at that one. Because the book is so big? Yeah. What is the name yeah. of the company that uh, Morticia goes with? Uh, oh, I didn't write that one down. Demon Press. Oh, yes, yes. Demon Press. 
has a good ring to it. <laughs> Especially for the Adams family. Mm-hmm. But Gomez doesn't want to mail the package, doesn't want to mail out the manuscript. He wants to he... sabotage the book. This is like, again, this is the one thing I actually hate about the Adams Family television show is the fact mm-hmm. that the recycled plot lines they use, if it's not Morticia doing it one week, it's, it's Gomez the next. Morticia sabotaged Gomez being the mayor of the town they live in. Gomez now sacrifices Morticia, uh, sabotages, tries to sabotage Morticia being a successful author. Yes. And yet either person really doesn't care all that much. By the end of the episode, she's just uh, happy, I guess, with the decision. She says uh, that Gomez was trying to prove a point to her, even though that wasn't actually his point, that they only publish trash. Well, according to Google, um, and depending on your point of view on the, the political climate right now, um, the publishing company Demon Press is a Russian Moscow publishing company. So, and all of their links for Demon Press, um, Google has to translate for me. They're all in Russian. Mm. All right. Well, we do know that the Adams were international, so. <laughs> but but our guest star on this episode certainly didn't look Russian. No, he no he doesn't. But it is funny <laughs> that they're. Uh, they have a Facebook page too. It only has eleven likes. Mm. Yikes! I wonder why. Mm. Um, yeah. Better probably so, because I, I I thought social media was kind of not a big thing in Russia. Like it, they're not very well received. But the books they have on their social media page do not look Russian whatsoever. Hmm. Maybe there's yeah. two different demon presses. Interesting. Anyway, well, moving along. <laughs> well, uh, the publisher says that he'll publish the book for five thousand dollars. Now, in book publishing, that type of money would actually go to Morticia, and they would buy the book from her. So that would be an advance. She shouldn't be putting up the $5,000. Now, $5,000 in 1965 translates out to a little under $39,000. So imagine you writing a book. For an advance, that's pretty good, actually, today. It it is to, to actually get an advance, but... The publisher is asking her for the money. So oh, if well, there you are book and, I, and then no, no, they will publish I, it. I, I got it because there are publishers all the time who contact me saying, oh, we have this program and you can like buy into it and we'll publish your book for you. And I'm like, why do I have to give you money to publish my book if you want to publish exactly. it so badly? Unless I plan on self-publishing, you shouldn't be getting any money from me. And the only money I should be giving you is to print the book. And by the way, you don't need the X number of dollars you're asking me to give you. Uh, my print cost should only be like three or four dollars per book, and you know, like the math doesn't add up, and they're just a bunch of bullshit. And they're like, oh, but we published like all these people, and they've won all these awards, and blah blah blah. And I'm like, great, publish my book for me then. Why do I have yeah, to give exactly. you money to publish my book? It's it's like a complete and utter scam. Gomez has a great line by the way that says, um, better to preserve a marriage than a manu than a masterpiece. <laughs> or is that mm. was that Fester? Was that Fester? Been a week uh, I, th- I think that was Fester. Okay. Mr. Boswell, by the way, is the guest in question. He is a genius author, publisher. A genius publisher. Uh, when he actually returns back, because Gomez is sure this is a scam. Stop. You know, that again. Hold on. Pause. I'm getting this awful just noise every five seconds. I don't know what it is. Ugh. All right. Go. 
So Gomez is certain that this is a scam. You know, just just like they're trying to scam you. Uh, any publisher that's asking for money, he's sure that they're, they're just going to take the money and run off to Brazil. But lo and behold, the publisher comes back with the published book, and apparently he did his job because he got the books into the children's school because the kids end up confronting Morticia with the book, saying, like, you know, how could you do this? We're on the eve of a um, rather controversial series of books that were published back when uh, we were in school, when we were uh, little kids. The Mm -hmm. scary stories to tell in the dark books have been turned into a movie produced by Guillermo del Toro. I love those books. Yep. I don't know how much, obviously, they're going to be following the movie, I mean, the plot of the books, because the books are all short stories. And from when I gather Mm -hmm. the trailer, the kids find the books and the stories come to life. Okay, so kind of like a Goosebumps thing. Yeah, we've done that plot line before. But I'm hoping it's better than the Goosebumps movie because I hated the Goosebumps movies because of that plot line. I kind of wish it was like one Goosebump. You know what I mean? Just one story. But they had to do because it's a Hollywood movie. They needed to cram as many of the stories in there as they could, you know, and Slappy the, 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 the puppet had to unlock them. And then the sequel was really stupid. Um, yeah, I, I preferred the first one rather than the sequel, but yeah, they just weren't all that great. Yeah, no, but uh, just in terms of like books the Adams Family would be into, um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark would definitely be uh, right up there with them, and it's cool that they're coming out next week. I, I have my ticket. Oh, yep. yeah, you'll have to tell us how that is. I will. Hopefully I get some cool swag. i got to get a hold of the... Uh, company that gives away all that swag that I get sometimes or whatever to see if they have anything for me. So, nice. I mean, the trailers have looked really creepy, so. I hope they show my favorite story, which is the woman with the scarf around her neck, and then when she finally takes off the scarf around her neck, at the insistence of her partner, uh, her head falls off. I, As a kid, that was, like, creepy to me. Was that a scary story to tell in the dark, or was that something else? No, that was a scary story to tell in the dark. Okay, I don't remember that being a scary story to tell in the dark. I remember that being another story, like they, 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 he, he dates her, they get married, and then when she's dying of old age, he finally, she finally says, okay, I'll take the scarf off, and then her head falls off. Yeah, that's the story. But it's like, dude, you were this woman through, like, all this time, and you banged her, and you, like, I don't know if you had kids, because that story doesn't go into that, and, like, now she's old and dying, and then the scarf, her head... What? Like, I, I, I always, like, as a kid, I was, I never pointed out the fact that they probably had sex, but as an adult, I'm like... You can totally keep a scarf on, you know, All the time for years? Yeah, this, this storyline is very straightforward. You know, he sabotages her. She is seemingly okay with it. Uh, she never really finds out that... She gets a contract for ten books. Yes. Ten books, because they loved the the new story, uh, the good giant slays Sir Lancelot, and she wants to change all the stories. So the, you know, Cinderella, the teenage delinquent. These are just masterpieces, and uh, you know, he changes them to be all light and fluffy. The same thing that the kids don't like. They just kind of look at her and you're like, how could you do this, Mom? You betrayed us. And she forgives Gomez. You know, like it's nothing. Reset back to center, you know. Just like with the thing with the uh, him running for the mayor. 
Yep. Everything has to be reset. You know, the world has to be maintained so that the next episode just starts right off where they left. This was an interesting idea. I just don't like how it was executed overall because it was Gomez sabotaging Morticia for no reason whatsoever. This should have been just like the fame and fortune of Gomez, of Morticia being who she is kind of gets to her and she has to leave her family and she can't do that. So she decides not to continue being a book author. So the same thing with like Lurch or whatever. Of course, Lurch went on his tour and then came back or he left the house and he came back in. You know, it's the same thing, just not... Yeah, I think the Gomez uh, sabotaging was a little bit Dumb. more off because he did not want to do the sabotaging but felt that he had to. Dumb. Dumb plot line. Badly written. I mean, yeah. it's just these writers sometimes are just unoriginal and unintelligent most of the time. And and it, it doesn't seem like this ever changes for like any of the modern updates of the show either. True, yeah. Not uh, my favorite episode. I was really excited about it until I watched it. Yeah, this one isn't one of my favorites either. No. I like it yeah. more when the Adams family are involved with um, hijinks that they're not trying to sabotage themselves or or hurt unintentionally hurt people that come into their house for no reason other than like they think they know better than them. Yes. I, I, I prefer when they're interacting with the community and the community is exasperated with them. I was at the movie theater uh, just before we started recording this to see Hobbs and Shaw, and there was a display outside of... Uh, my theater for a uh, real 3D little box you threw your glasses in when you're done watching a movie, and it was d- and uh, the uh, the box had the Adams family and thing on it, and the Adams mm. family were all sitting in the movie theater with popcorn with the 3D glasses on. So I guess the Adams family animated movie will be in 3D as well, which makes sense because I think most animated movies are in 3D mm, these days. Yeah. I don't really like the effect of 3D because it messes with my motion sickness, but however, you know, I'll still watch it. However, will you go see The Addams Family if it's playing at IMAX? I don't know if it has an IMAX showing or not. Uh, no. No? Okay. No. I, I will only see it on a standard screen. If I have to do the 3D, then just have to um, uh, kind of throw up afterwards. <laughs> my motion sickness is pretty bad. I found out that their, um, the uh, It Chapter 2 is going to be in the IMAX. Yes, and that looks frightening. Yeah. Oh, my God, it looks good, but it looks frightening. Right? Definitely. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much all that I have for these notes for this episode of the Dead TV Podcast, one episode this week because of our interview. So when you come back next week, we'll have two more episodes, and then uh, that will be that. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. Thank our guest for coming on the show. Yes. Thank you very much, uh, Linda H. Davis. That was an excellent interview, and We'll continue enjoying your books and and using them for the focus areas on our uh, upcoming podcasts. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes if you can leave us a rating. You can also find us on Facebook at The Dead TV Podcast or at individual Twitters at ChrisDSAB or at ElegantlyKinky. And you can find all of our older episodes as well still on our website, RadioHorror.com. Uh, for the Adams Family, as well as our previous shows, such as Dracula Series, Constantine, Friday the 13th, and more. And we'll be back again next week with two more episodes of the Adams Family here on the Dead TV Podcast. Mm-hmm.